0: Hi, I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn, and thanks for joining me here today on The Communication Architect. Each week, we'll share content that will empower you to grow your personal leadership capacity through the development of communication competencies that build emotional health and relational resilience. We'll unpack some practical applications of interpersonal, intrapersonal, family, and organizational communication. And we'll connect with stories of transformation that will inspire you to achieve personal and social change. Now, let's build the scaffolding you need to become a communication architect. When my husband and I were newly married, I had an experience that illustrated to me the power of a mindset. It was late at night and I was finishing up some laundry when our garage door suddenly started opening by itself. I ran upstairs and recounted to my husband what was happening. He nonchalantly looked outside, saw nothing, and closed the garage door. I was still a little freaked out when suddenly, just a moment later, the garage door opened by itself again. This seemed pretty suspect to me and I wanted answers. I reminded my husband that it was nighttime and our garage door was opening on its own. Restating the obvious did not help. He again looked outside, saw nothing, and was fully content to come back in, question unanswered. And then it happened again. By this point, my explanations became more dramatic. And the less he responded, the more heightened my responses became. I was freaked out. He was calm. In his dignified British manner, he explained that it was probably just our garage door remote crossing circuits with someone else's garage door remote. What? That did not help. All I could think was that there was probably some serial killer driving around the neighborhood opening garage doors and my husband didn't even care. I stormed upstairs to finish the laundry and as I angrily flung the dryer door open in a state of total overreaction, I quickly discovered the culprit. Flipping around in the dryer and setting the garage door on a nonstop pattern of automatic opening was the remote control to the garage. We can get ourselves very worked up over our perception of an event. In the case of the garage door, there was no real threat of danger, but I had allowed an inerrant mindset to take over. And there were two paradigms at work here. One was fear, the threat of danger, and the other was offense at another person's perceived nonchalance. Both were faulty mindsets, but they nonetheless impacted my belief to behavior responses. Our mindsets are formed through our cognitive biases, through an ongoing focus on something we personally place value on. Where our treasure is, there our hearts will be, there our mindsets will be, and out of that will flow our actions. When we look for evil, we will find it. That's the belief to behavior pattern. Our offenses, those issues that stir us up, they illuminate our allegiances, our loyalties, our commitments, what's really in our hearts. And as we said last week, offense is a great litmus test for where our allegiances lie. In our show last week, we talked about how when the religious leaders of the day were offended by Jesus in John 8, he said they sought to kill him because his word, quote, found no place in them. If you abide in my word, Jesus said, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The reason for their offense was clear. His word had no place in their hearts because they were loyal to another cause, not the cause of Christ. An offended brother, Proverbs 18, 19 says, is more unyielding than a fortified city. There's a common cultural mindset today that for every wrongdoing, every offense, we are to seek vengeance or even resolve. But as we'll see, the biblical worldview is actually built on a whole different model. It's not logical. It can't be explained by human reasoning. It isn't carnal. It doesn't seek resolve through the shedding of blood or even the shedding of tears. Proverbs 10:12 says that hatred stirs up strife, but love covers over all offenses. Above all, 1 Peter 4.8 says, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Wait, cover over? That will mess with our American sense of justice and judgment right there. The rugged individualist in us is tempted to recoil when we think of our covering over a wrongdoing. Proverbs 17.13 says that if anyone returns evil for good evil will not depart from his house, his bayeth in the Hebrew, his household, his family. Do we really want evil to take up residence in our family line because of our personal unwillingness to forgive because of our desire for retribution? That's a spirit of vengeance, repaying evil for evil. Jesus renounced it. What did Jesus say when he hung on the cross? After being beaten beyond recognition, mocked, ridiculed, and then bearing the weight of the sin of all humanity on his shoulders, he said these words, "'Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do.'" He could have said, "'Just wait till I get my hands on you, punks,' but he didn't. Instead, he forgave.'" These are very different ideals, different allegiances, different mindsets from the popular culture we live in. So as believers, what is our response? What's our responsibility? Let's look first at the third characteristic of the brain autonomic functions. In the first episode, we looked at how the brain is associational, that it forms connections to new incoming information based on existing worldviews, neurons that fire together, wire together. And then last week, we talked about the brain being a social organ that it engages and is developed by, literally socialized by other brains. And finally, we learned that our brains are autonomic, that is, they learn behavior patterns and continue to follow in that rut with great determination unless we intentionally notice the rut and set them free from it. How do these worldviews, these paradigms, these mindsets form? Well, there's a powerful interface here between biology and sociology. For example, if you grow up in an angry household, there may be biological underpinnings of anger, overreactive tendencies, certainly, but there are also sociological ones. That is, the trait of an explosive expression is taught just as much as it's caught. A person growing up in an overweight household may have a genetic predisposition toward a larger physique, but there are also household practices like sedentary lifestyles, high calorie diets that support the body type as well. In other words, both nature and nurture are at work in our patterns of mindset. In addition to being associational and actively social, the brain is also autonomic, that is reflexive, involuntary. It creates autopilot functions based on our associational and social experiences. Now, when we say autonomic, we usually mean things like Uh, breathing, blood pressure, heartbeat, blinking, things you don't have to think about. But here's another example. If you've been living in the same house for a while, when you get into your car to drive there, you simply click on autopilot, right? You probably don't make much of a conscious effort to turn right at the first light, left at the second. Instead, you probably think about a million other things while your brain does what you programmed it to do through your regular habit of driving there. But what happens when you move to a new house? You have to rethink the route. And sometimes you catch yourself driving to your old house out of habit. So you have to make a conscious effort to intervene in the autonomic behavior. And if you've done that before, you've experienced change. And that is evidence of neuroplasticity. That's good news. As much as 95% of our behavior is said to be habitual, and we only have a small window of opportunity to step out of that rut of habit and into the stream of intentionality in order to foster change. Now, one of the ongoing challenges with this autonomic function is that we're often completely unaware of it. We're driven by a mindset that we chose somewhere along the way, and we defend it with every new piece of data that comes our way. The only way, the only way to get free from a faulty mindset is by holding it up to the lens of truth. I would even go so far as to say that truth is the only power in the universe that can break through a problematic paradigm, the truth. The other ongoing challenge with the autonomic function is that it continues to be fueled by our sociocultural norms, that is, the unwritten assumptions of our society, as one sociologist puts it. Our frame of reference reflects and illuminates the culture we belong to, we ascribe to. Society's rules live inside of us. The expectations, norms, values of the culture with which we identify, we carry within us a set of values that we've absorbed, internalized from our social worlds. What George Herbert Mead called the generalized other. We see the generalized other in action when we begin to evaluate the influential role of one-way centralized communication like television, movies, music, internet, newspapers, and other mass media communication challenges and channels for media have become the ever-present peer. They dictate rules and norms of right and wrong from dress to hairstyle to bodybuild to when and what to post on social media. Through our expressions, our views, or taking any stance, Social sociologists say that we are actually expressing that generalized others. In fact, for 18 to 25-year-olds, music is the most impacting medium on behavior. A University of North Carolina study showed that listening to music with violent lyrics dramatically increased the likelihood of either self-injurious or other injurious behavior and listening to highly sexualized lyrics also had a dramatic impact on hypersexualized promiscuous behavior. Now, again, I know we don't like to think of ourselves as persuadable, but Proverbs 13:10 says we won't be wise in the companionship of fools. We are definitely persuadable in our social settings, you can take that one up with King Solomon, I guess. The expectations of the generalized other can be a benefit. For example, they can keep us from breaking legal and social norms that might cause embarrassment or awkwardness or legal ramifications. However, in the same way, a persuasive perception of the generalized other can create an unhealthy expectation or value system that becomes embedded in our neural structure. And While we may not be aware of it until we breach the culture, we are nonetheless governed by its potentially injurious expectations. If your friends expected you to be on one side of an issue, for example, and you posted or said something opposite to that, the cultural norm is suddenly breached and you may get the silent treatment or you may be bullied until you speak with the voice that is expected of you. These responses can help us see the cultural norms, that water we're swimming in every day. It creates an awareness of the norm, just like someone talking to you in the elevator reminds you that elevator norms include silence and staring straight ahead. (laughs) In 1902, Charles Horton Cooley said that we see ourselves through the quote, looking glass self, that is the mirror. And as a result, we find ourselves behaving in ways we think others expect us to behave. Now, this is the madness of the autonomic brain. As Cooley, Mead, and others have shown, we are largely influenced and at times even governed by our social systems. So it's important then that we make ourselves aware of both the individual and the social processes that are influencing our mindsets and thus our behaviors. Mead's symbolic interactionism is the idea that people act in certain ways towards certain symbols based on the meaning those symbols hold, meanings that are founded on social influences. This might impact, for example, how you view the treatment of the American flag or statues that tell the story of America's history. This idea interacts with what's called role theory, the tendency for human behavior to form a predictable pattern within a certain social context, a role being played out. Anthropologist Ralph Linton's status theory posited that rapid changes are taking place in modern society. And these are, he said, a result of intergenerational disintegration falling apart. He believed that the system of status and roles inherited from previous generations is breaking down, and we will thus be increasingly uncertain of our status or role. Does this sound familiar? Can you see this identity crisis unfolding right before our very eyes in our culture today? Maybe you've heard it said that what we tolerate today, we will embrace tomorrow. For better or for worse, there are agents of influence in our social realms and in our existing patterns of belief and behavior that provide psychological foundations for the paradigm, the worldview, the mindset will hold tomorrow. This is one of the many reasons the institution of family is so important. Read the works of sociologist David Blankenhorn to find out more about that. We may talk about it later, too, on another show. But the impact of father and mother on a child's life sets the stage for future worldviews. This is why Titus and Timothy tell us to put the family first before we're pouring into others outside the home. We're expected to make sure our own homes are in order. And one of the saddest trends I see in ministry is leaders who forsaken the training of their children in exchange for the praise of strangers' lips. The secure attachment of the family, says UCLA professor Dr. Robert Naborski, is a vital component of socio-emotional health because a secure attachment helps us metabolize life's stresses. It helps us keep life in perspective. The insecurely attached person must constantly recruit, quote, other sources of comfort within or without the self for comfort, resulting in instability, inflexibility, or even extreme rigidity. When we look at the stats on children who haven't been attached, we see greater likelihood of gangs, drug abuse, criminal behavior, because they're desperately trying to fit in to recruit that source of comfort to fill a hole that a parent didn't fill. This is yet another example of how social effectors affect our mindset, which impacts our thoughts and our actions and our words. Maybe you've seen that drawing that illustrates two perspectives, an older woman looking down or a younger woman looking away. The sketch first appeared on a postcard in 1888 and was renamed and repurposed by British cartoonist William Eli Hill in a humor journal in 1915. Its analysis has now been a source of speculation for over a century. A study in the journal Science found that the image we perceive first when we see the postcard, either the older or the younger woman, is largely due to our own age. We see through the lens of our self-reflection. This is true, of course, for our mindsets as well. We have selective attention towards experiences that are important to us, and this heightens the perception of prevalence. When you're planning to buy a new car, suddenly it seems that everyone is driving that specific model of car, not because the production increased, but because your awareness is heightened. Now, this is an important lesson in a media central age. When a common theme is blasted across the airwaves continuously, we tend to think it is more prevalent than it really is. And this is largely determined by three factors, culture, context, and cohort. The culture in which we live and were raised in has a bearing on our interpretation of events, and it also impacts our response to those events. People from expressive cultures, for example, may be more likely to vent verbally than to stew silently over a problem. People from small towns are normally more prone to greet one another on the streets than are people who live in large cities. When I moved to Miami from my small Illinois town of 2,100 people, I couldn't figure out why no one responded to my courteous good morning addresses to passersby. Now, a culture can be a family, it can be a town, or it can be a larger macro hole that shares some aspect of value or connectivity. The culture we grow up in can determine, especially on that autonomic scale, our interpretation of and our response to life events. Additionally, mindsets are interpreted through context, that is what's happened around, before, or after these events. The context of school shootings in the United States means that raging journal entries by silent brooding students are now given much more serious attention than they were just a decade ago. The context of a conversation or a book or a movie can bear profoundly on the audience's interpretation of that work. An anti-war movie situated just after a war, for example, yields a different interpretation than it would be if the movie aired when there was no threat of war. The context of the situation determines the interpretive slant of the mindset it produces. And our mindsets are also determined by our cohort. A cohort is a group of people who share roughly the same age category and who have a connectedness through shared events of impact. For example, when I asked my millennial students what they were doing when the news of 911 reached them, they remember it with vivid detail. They're connected by the event in the same way that the cohort before them might have been connected to the assassination of John F. Kennedy. My Gen Z students are too young to recall 911 vividly, vividly, but though they lack a specific emotional attachment to the day's events, they're nonetheless aware of its significant impact on their lives. Our cohort influences our interpretation. The last two generations were taught in politically correct public systems where they weren't allowed to have an opinion, let alone disciple someone. And this has affected their mindset. But this is yet another faulty worldview. The word disciple, where we get our word discipline, literally means to teach those around us to obey all that Jesus has commanded the disciples to do. Why does the Bible warn us against exactly the kind of division we see playing out on social media today? First, it distracts us from the real enemy and our true purpose. It keeps us fighting with one another instead of fighting the enemy of our souls. And it keeps us from uniting against a common adversary. And division also bears a significant physiological impact on the human body. A 2018 Harvard study showed that repeated activation of the stress response contributes to high blood pressure, promotes the formation of artery-clogging deposits, and causes neural changes that can contribute to anxiety, depression, addiction, and obesity. Chronic low-level stress, the study showed, keeps the body's HPA axis constantly activated. HPA is a network that consists of the hypothalamus, the pituitary gland, and the adrenal glands. So it's like a car motor that's idling in high gear for too long. Over time, in the human body, this can cause damage to blood vessels and arteries, increase the risk of strokes and heart attacks and contribute to weight gain. It is not good. The Harvard study shows that increasing social support helps the body moderate chronic stress and crisis. Now, the authors of that study literally say they don't understand the connection. They say, "Quote, it's not clear why social support helps, but as believers, we know why it works." We know that the relational God who created the human body also created us as relational beings to walk in community, root word there, unity. Division is taxing on us emotionally, relationally, mentally, physically. We are sons and daughters of the Prince of Peace. So what do we do? Paul said in Ephesians 4 that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager. We should be eager, excited about Looking forward to there is one body and one spirit. He said, just as you were called to the hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. If you grew up in the last two generations, especially in the public school environment, you were told to keep your opinions to yourself. There was only one type of, quote, truth allowed, the idol of individual truth. There was no allowance of absolute truth. There was no encouragement to speak up, to have a divergent opinion, to break free of the social norm. But the Bible is very clear on our responsibility, and we don't just look the other way. If you have a friend who is posting divisive nonsense every day, listen, Nurture and admonition is part of discipleship. It is love. Matthew 7, 5 says we take the plank out of our own eye first so that we're not a hypocrite, but we still help the friend remove the speck. And to do that, we have to see clearly. We have to possess a mindset not built on us or them, but on the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of darkness. This is where that father paradigm comes in. We've had a lot of nurture in our culture, and now we need some admonition. As the hands and feet of Christ, we are the restorers of the brokenhearted. We bring clarity for the confused. We are the deliverers of peace in times of chaos. It's time to shore up our mindsets and speak up for the truth. Sociologist Anthony Giddens, who's peering into the Christian world from a secular point of view, puts it this way, Christianity is a revolt against the social order of the day. I love that. Titus 3 tells us to devote ourselves to good works, to be submissive, obedient, ready for good work. Speak evil of no one, he says. Avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show perfect courtesy toward all people. And he goes on to say we're to avoid foolish controversies and dissensions, genealogies, quarrels about the law because they are unprofitable and worthless. As for the person who stirs up division, he says... Warn them once, then twice, and then have nothing to do with them. Jude one seventeen through 22 says, In the last times, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh." And then the doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So he says, scoffers are people who follow their own ungodly passions, cause divisions, and are devoid of the Spirit. And he says, To build yourself up. It's not someone else's responsibility to redeem our mindsets. It's ours. He says we build ourselves up in the most holy faith by A, praying in the Holy Spirit, B, keeping ourselves in the love of God, and C, waiting for the mercy that leads to eternal life. As we said last week, we know the root by the fruit. Paul says in Romans 16 to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. 1 Peter 3 8 tells us, finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So before you make that next post or have that next conversation, consider your mindset. Are you in allegiance with the truth? Are you pursuing kingdom objectives? Or are you just adding to the grating sound of popular opinion? If you have a mindset that conflicts with the truth, the word of God, then it is time to draw a line in the sand, friend. We're either for him or against him. That's the only us and them. Make a determination in your heart today that you are going to step over that line and renew your mind right now because your belief determines your behavior. Thanks again for joining us here on The Communication Architect. If you have questions about today's episode or if there are topics you'd like to see us address, send your comments via Instagram to at DrLisaDunn or via email to contacts at DrLisaDunn.com. That's D-R-L-I-S-A-D-U-N-N-E dot com. And remember, strategic communication will help you build greater emotional health and relational resilience. So don't miss the next episode. I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn, and I look forward to talking with you next time right here on The Communication Architect.